I'm going to ask you to turn in your bulletin as I read now, because probably more than most Sundays, you're going to need to follow along in the text. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but you're going to want to follow along for future reference. There's also this section on the very last page, if you wanted to fill it out and say hi, give us your name, and drop it in the box in the back behind this room. We'd love to follow up with you and say hi back. But for now, I'm going to be looking at pages four and five, and this is where we're going to find this morning's sermon text beginning with Genesis 1 and going into Genesis 2. Hear these words from the book that we love. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Down to verse 27, chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2 now, verse 14 to 15. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to uh, take you all on a tour of one of the most important religious sites in Philadelphia. Now, most of you are familiar with this religious site, but I'm going to make it sound strange to you, almost like you're from another planet and you know nothing about the worship practices of Philadelphians or maybe about human beings in general, okay? So this is one of the most significant religious sites in Philadelphia. It's in South Philadelphia. And the first thing you notice as you get close to it is there's this ocean of parking, just a sea of parking lots. And as you get a little closer, you see people who just throbbing, moving, bouncing, excited, wearing the same color, wearing the color of their gods. In fact, if you wear the colors of rival gods, um, you're going to get in a lot of trouble at this worship site. So um, as it gets towards 1 p.m., that's the time that the service starts. Um, you start, and, and by the way, a lot of these worshipers have gotten there three, four, five hours before the worship service starts. They're so excited. And as you start moving towards the sanctuary of the temple, 
um, people get more excited. It's like the excitement level keeps rising, and there's some people you know, to the side of you that are so excited that they're throwing up uh, because they got, got started celebrating really early in the morning, but you don't worry about them. You keep moving. And then you get really close to the sanctuary. You get right up front, and that's when you realize just how much of a sacred space this is. There are there's statues that uh, commemorate the heroes of the faith. And there are flags and banners and, and plaques um, that, that celebrate the milestones of the faith. And uh, if you're uninitiated, uh, you're a seeker. There's a map that can show you where else you need to go, because everybody has a seat. You can find your seat on the map. And um, even though everybody has a seat, there's a lot of standing in the worship service. And uh, as you, you get moving, you, you, get, you get closer and closer to your seat, and you hear the chanting's already begun. There's a lot of call and response in this worship service, and you hear it as you get towards your seat, E-A-G-L-E-S. And I, I mean, I could go on and on and on. You should have seen the number of uh, notes I was taking to describe, if I wanted to, just how many things aren't like a worship service, are a worship service. I mean, tell me an Eagles game is not a worship service. The root of the word that we use for worship is worth. Ascribing worth to something. I mean, think of not just a sporting event, a concert, or you might, you might say even any destination. You can, tell much how much, you can tell how much it's worth to you by how much you're willing to give up for it. How much it's worth it to you. Um, just blocking out the time on the calendar, the investment of time and attention and energy, worship. This is ascribing worth. And it is something human beings cannot help but do. The only question is, what will we worship? When you, speak, when you think about biblical worship, move from sports to the Bible for a moment. Um, the Bible actually speaks of worship in a number of different modes. For example, all of life is worship in one sense. You know, rising and sleeping and eating and working. You know, we were created to do this with an eye to God. In one sense, all of life is worship. But um, there are many, many, many passages in Scripture that, that talk about the gathered assembly of worship. And beginning today, we're starting a nine-part worship series about what we see in Scripture that is happening when people come together in a gathered worship service. Why would we do this? Why would we spend nine weeks on this in the fall, you know, when people are coming, coming back from summer rhythms and facing the fall? Think about this. In the last 18 months, every church in the world, in the world, has had to answer the question, what is so sacred about gathering together in the same space? We can't for a while. And so as we think about you know, how long we want to do this or the conditions necessary for us to be able to do that again, it makes every church in the world at least consider the question, um, what did we lose when we weren't doing this? What is sacred about regathering? How sacred is it? What, according to Scripture, exactly is supposed to happen when we get together in worship services? 
These are questions that we will only begin to answer today. Think of today as like a map. Today, a few moments of this sermon, I think, are going to feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, but that's kind of like what a table of contents feels like a little bit, but we need it. This is going to set the stage for everywhere else we go, and it's going to be rich, I trust, not boring. I mean, this is the stuff of our lives, the stuff that we're made for, but it's going to go a little deeper than usual and a little bit wider than usual from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. Before I go any further, I just want to cite the work of many people who have studied um, sacred spaces and what's going on in the gathering of the worshiping assembly. A few names, N.T. Wright, Gregory Beale, um, Desmond Alexander, and a pastor of mine, Jeff Bradford, um, who did uh, a series related to this on the book of Leviticus uh, three, four years ago in his church, uh, which is down south now. For today, we begin with the first sentence of the Bible, which I read for you a few minutes ago. Genesis 1.1, which is a verse that is all about space or place, a gathering space for a gathered assembly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth. This is an incredibly important phrase in the early chapters of Genesis. We get this phrase again and again, heavens and the earth, heavens and the earth, together, heavens and the earth. And I think uh, for a lot of us, when we think about the heavens and the earth, we don't really understand all the time what the scriptures are getting at. I think a lot of us think of as earth as a place where we kind of go through a tryout so that some of us might make it to heaven afterwards, after our time on earth. Actually, the book of Genesis describes heavens and earth as two what we can loosely call spaces or places that are meant to work together. Together, not separately. You know, in the ancient world, not just the Jewish people, but certainly the Jewish people, if you ask them, what do you call a place where heaven and earth come together? What do you call a heavens and the earth place? They would say, well, I know that, that's easy. It's a temple. That's what a temple is. When you see Jesus and the apostles in the Gospels going to the temple, they aren't going to the temple simply to think about heavenly things or to act like they're in heaven. The temple is the place where heaven and earth come together. A temple is a heaven and earth place, a, a place where God in his holy presence comes and dwells in our midst. And things happen there that don't happen other places. So this morning, I'm going to give you an overview of the sacred spaces that we see in the scriptures, these heaven and earth spaces, and it's not just the temple. As we find them in scripture, there are a number of sacred spaces, and we're going to see how they're interrelated from cover to cover. We're going to be revisiting each one of these sacred spaces at some point over the next nine weeks. Again, think of today as a map, and this is your map. These are, does everybody know what these are? They're called Russian nesting dolls. I think they're up here behind me. Yeah, great. Thanks, Harrison. And there's also something here in your bulletin with some references if you wanted to take it home. This is the best visual I can think of, and I think it'll become clear what's so useful about this visual. Um, when you look at a Russian nesting doll, um, they're the same shape, 
and they have pretty much the same markings, although there are a few variances, just as there are in sacred spaces in scripture. But the, the main difference between them isn't shape or markings, but scale. And there's a movement from smaller to larger of these sacred spaces in scripture. So, first one, Eden. Can we jump there, Harrison? Eden, Genesis 2 and 3. A few things about Eden. The word Eden in Hebrew means delight. Eden was a place of delight, a place where people were with God, unmediated God in them, with God in the house of God. Eden, as we read about it in Genesis 2, just like we read a few minutes ago, is the place where God placed human beings after he had intimately created them. So this is Eden. You go ahead and put human beings up there too. So human beings, Eden. And um, one of the things about, uh, about human beings that I don't want to skip over too fast, we sang this uh, this morning, it's your breath in our lungs. It's your breath, God, in our lungs. What are human beings made of? Genesis 2 says they're made of dust of the earth and the breath of God, earth and heavens. A human being is a meeting of heaven and earth. It's a microcosm of that happening. A human being is a sacred space. There's, that could be a whole sermon series. But within that, Eden. So, moving on. I'm going to try to move this pretty quickly because you're beginning to get the point. After that, we get the tabernacle. Human beings, then Eden, the original sacred space for human beings to meet with God, then the tabernacle. You, you might not know about the tabernacle if you're new to scripture. Second book of the Bible after Genesis, starts with Genesis, moves to Exodus. Exodus is the story of the enslaved Israelites who are led out of Egypt and they make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And as soon as they make a covenant with God, what does God have them do? He has them build a sacred space, a tabernacle, a tent in the wilderness where God can meet with them. And you may not know about this, but there are all kinds of fascinating ties between Eden and the tabernacle. These are far fewer than half. I'm just going to give you a few of them first. In Eden, the man is tasked with working and keeping the garden. Those exact same verbs are used frequently to, to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle. The priests, the Levites, work and keep the tabernacle. Secondly, there was a lampstand in the tabernacle that was shaped just like a tree. And it was supposed to symbolize the tree of life in the garden that we read about in Genesis 2. The tabernacle used gold and onyx as stones for decorating the tent and the priestly garments. Do you know that gold and onyx only appear in one other place in the first few books of the Bible? Right outside the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle is always to face east. Eden is in the east. In Exodus 40, the glory of God descends and fills the tabernacle just as it filled the garden. And finally, but this isn't final, it's just finally for now. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their sin, God famously placed cherubim, these angelic creatures, 
cherubim at the gate of the garden with a sword. And it was for their protection. It says it was to guard the way to the tree of life. Because, presumably, if you're in a sinful fallen state and you re-access the tree of light, you will be in that state eternally, separated from God, and God didn't want that to happen. So for their protection, he sets up a cherubim. Where do we next see cherubim as it relates to sacred spaces? Well, there was a curtain that led into the most holy place of the tabernacle. And what were on it but cherubim? saying, warning, caution, enter at your own risk. So many, many parallels. Human beings, Eden, tabernacle, temple. Okay, we're moving along. Still with me? The temple. The temple was the permanent tabernacle planned by David, finally built by his son Solomon when Israel rested from war. Again, way more similarities between the tabernacle and Eden than I can get into. These are far less than half. Here are just a few, and I think they're fascinating. So, originally, in the tabernacle, um, think, think about it this way. The tabernacle actually could rest inside of the temple. And actually, this was part of the point. The altar in uh, the tabernacle for sacrifices was seven feet long, seven feet wide and four and a half feet tall. In the temple, the altar was 30 feet wide, 30 feet long, and 15 feet high. It could nest inside, the, the tabernacle altar could nest inside the temple altar. So scale is growing here. Similar to the dimensions of the temple and tabernacle themselves. The tabernacle was 45 feet long, 15 wide and 15 feet high. The temple was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You get the point. The tabernacle could nest right inside the temple. Just a few more things. Instead of cherubim on the curtains in the tabernacle, Solomon built two 15-foot-high cherubim in the temple. This would have filled up the entire tabernacle in of itself, just the cherubim in the temple. In 1 Kings 8, like Exodus 40, the glory of God descends and fills the temple. Interestingly, uh, you read about this in 1 Kings 5 through 8, and it's there in your bulletin, the, the text references. There were decorations all over the place in the temple, and there were a lot of things like pomegranates and gourds and fruit what was this meant to symbolize? Eden. This is kind of a garden temple, like God's sacred space is getting bigger. The temple. Think of it as a small working model of creation, except, of course, creation has gone terribly wrong since Eden, and God is bringing new creation. Okay, so, fourth New creation. You see him moving along here. Also, think of new creation, similar in shape, similar in markings, but in scale, much bigger. And this is one of the places that um, really the nesting dolls don't quite do it justice. You know, if, if, the, if the temple was 90 feet long and 45 feet wide, etc., what are the dimensions of new creation? Okay, if you're not familiar with new creation, we read about it in the call to worship today. It's in Revelation 21, 
the first few verses, and here are just a few verses. The apostle John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he goes on to describe this heavenly city coming down out of the heavens onto earth. It's a meeting of heaven and earth. And in Revelation 21 and 22, he goes ahead and describes the dimensions. Get this. The new creation, as it's described in Revelation, it's not 90 feet or 900 feet. It's a cube that is 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles long by 1,400 miles high. Think about it this way. You know, like an airplane goes to cruising altitude. It's like seven or eight miles. This is 1,400 miles high. What's the point? God's sacred space is growing. This would have covered, it's symbolic, I believe, but it's symbolic of something true and real and one day physical. God's dwelling place will absorb all of creation. That's the point. There's also a river running through the new creation. And on either side of the river, as described at the end of Revelation, is that tree of life keeps making a comeback, this tree of life, or the symbolism of it. John says, the tree of life has grown to be on either side of this great river, and its fruit is for the healing of the nations. So we see the sacred space of Eden has made a comeback, and then some, to include a gathered assembly that can hold innumerable Worshippers, like way more, way more than an Eagle Stadium. Finally, Jesus. Jesus Christ. There's something really interesting that uh, Solomon says in a prayer at the dedication of the temple. Solomon says to God, the heavens themselves can't contain you in a prayer to God. He's basically saying, look, we've just built you a temple but we have no illusions that you can fit inside of here. You can descend and and share your glory with us, but you are so much greater than any building could ever contain. Now, if Jesus Christ is God, that means even the heavens and the earth are a drop in the bucket of his magnificence and greatness and fullness few notes about Jesus Christ and how we think about him in relation to temples. I hope I haven't lost you. I expect to lose some of you, but that's why I give you the, the text reference for afterwards, and I'll hang out. But listen to this. At the very begin, beginning of the Gospel of John, John refers to the Son of God before he took on flesh and was born of a virgin. John refers to Jesus as the Word, the Word. He says in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the word for tent. He dwelt among us just like a tabernacle. Put on skin like a tent. This means, again, that Jesus is completely God and completely man. He's a meeting of heaven and earth. What else? When Jesus is at the temple, at one point he famously says, one greater than the temple is here. Actually, in the the very next chapter, in John 2, 
he says, and he's in a dispute with people at the temple, if you were to destroy this temple, speaking of the temple that was his body, John says, I would rise it up in three days. He speaks about himself as a temple all the time. It's very interesting to me. If you were to go into a pagan temple, let's say you were serving a pagan god and you built a temple in ancient days. You built the temple. You know what the very last thing, the very last thing that you would put in that temple is? You would put in an idol, an image of the god that that temple meant to serve. If it was Dagon of the Philistines, there'd be an image of Dagon of the Philistines. You know what God's image was that he put in Eden? A human being. There's no other idol. There's no other image. And again, you and I, made in God's image, that's Genesis 1.27, we know how bad things have gone. We know how we've turned away from God. And it's Jesus who became one of us, who finally restored human beings to what they were meant to be and really lived life for the first time as the first faithful human being, bring together heaven and earth perfectly. This is why the Apostle Paul says for you and me, one way to understand our salvation, when we come to Jesus and place our faith in him, it's like we can think of ourselves as being in Christ. We are in him. I mean, I put too many in here, but I'd like to put this inside of it right now. When God looks at us, he cannot see us apart from Jesus, the perfect human being who is all and in all. He does not see our sins. They're completely forgiven. But more than that, he sees sons and daughters, but he refers to us as the, with that firstborn language of sons. He sees sons in the son. There's no other way for God to perceive you in Christ, you're a restored meeting of heaven and earth. Cover to cover, I just did a lot. I just did a lot. But I want to give you one more. What about that cherubim and the sword guarding the way back into God's presence? Some of you are familiar with this. Some of you have never heard this before. Lean in for a second. In the tabernacle, once a year, once a year, the high priest went through those curtains where those cherubim were facing him. Like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, am I really going to do this? And he went in with blood on his hands, saying, sacrifice is necessary, atonement is necessary for me to do this. Um, I'm entering into a place where if I behold the holiness of God, all that can happen is for me to be overwhelmed and die apart from him somehow making a gracious way for me to be near him without being destroyed by him. The news of the gospel is that Jesus faced the sword of that cherubim for us. Isaiah puts it this way. He will be cut off from the land of the living. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. John put it this way in the book of Revelation. When he looked at that heavenly city, the new heavens and the new earth, he said this. He said, in the midst of it all, I saw a lamb that looked like it had been slain, who had the markings of sacrifice. The sword of God's wrath against evil and disobedience 
fell voluntarily on Jesus Christ and didn't just strike him. It struck death itself. The way has been made plain. Sins have been forgiven. You are and always will be by faith in Christ. And you go before God in him. Praise God. Let me end like this, folks. So, I, I know, again, I know that this was more like a lecture than a normal sermon. So if you want, you can go back and listen to it. If you want, you can ask me a question. If you want, you can revisit this text. But let me just say, e- even with all that we've unpacked cover to cover this morning, speedily, I hope this isn't just Bible trivia time, where you can, you know, do a debate with your friends. Test each other about Bible trivia. Let me describe it this way. Um, A few weeks ago, I went to my first concert since the pandemic began. And um, it was pretty close to a sellout, actually. So my first instinct was just to say, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe we're doing this. I can't believe we've gotten to this place. And I I was remembering how much of a gift live music is. And I was regularly in concerts, regularly in shows before the pandemic. It's a pretty big part of my life. And we're in a city that's not the best, so I'm told by bands, not the best city for live music, but it's a decent one. I was reminded that live music, especially now that recording artists don't make much money, you know, that's putting it lightly, don't make much money from their recordings anymore. Live music is just so crucial for like bands getting paid, but also for building a scene, building a community of listeners. It's, It's not too much to say it's like an ecosystem. That like if you participate in it in a healthy way, I mean this is really how I think about music personally, if you participate in it, you help it thrive. And if you don't, it diminishes. Um, and so it's like really important to these musicians and uh, it's obviously really important to those going to the shows. But think about it this way. No one walks into a concert and says this is about me. Well, it's about the people on stage, but you also better believe it's also about us, not so much me, but look what we're doing. We're coming, responding, saying this is worth it to make this all happen. Nobody says this is about me. It's not about you, but you individually are so important. Without this coming together of individuals, it doesn't happen. Why do I say all this? The Apostle Paul says something remarkable about sacred spaces and sacred gatherings of people in 1 Corinthians 3.16. And this is up there under the human being part if you want to look at it later. He says, you are, and get this, he's talking about you in plural. He's not speaking to any individual. He's saying you, not you, you are a singular temple. Not you are temples, you are are a temple, collectively, indwelled by the Spirit of God in Christ, coming together. And when you do, temple-ish things happen. And when you don't, that diminishes. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And this means a thousand things. It means God wants to fill you. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but he also wants to flood your life with all of his grace and glory and beauty and mission and purpose. You 
collectively. He wants to do that. We need to get the individualist language out of the Apostle Paul with this verse. Because I know a lot of you know this verse, but you think about it. I am a temple of the Holy Spirit. And as far as that goes, there's some truth there. But he would have put it that way if he wanted you to take it that way. You collectively are a temple. And he wants to flood our common life. And guys, we're going to get to the so what does this mean? Why do we do what we do in worship? Why does our service go in the flow that it does? What might change depending on context? What should never change before Jesus comes back? God help us because his word directs us accordingly. We're going to get into all of that stuff. For today, I want you to be assured there is a templing that happens when we gather that doesn't when we don't. And it's not about you, but you're so much more important than you think about to the other people in this room, to the other service that meets here at 1130, to the other Christians around the world who you'll never meet, and to Christ our God, you don't take yourself seriously enough, temple, to be continued. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.